Welcome to the Golden Age of Cardboard podcast, where we remember a time when stacks of cards were held together with rubber bands and Mickey Mantles were put in bike spokes. We hope you will enjoy and reminisce as you come along with us as we tell stories about the baseball cards from the Golden Age of Baseball. We will examine the state of the vintage baseball card market and talk to some of the greatest collectors in the hobby. You won't be hearing us talk about any chrome or shiny cards here. Now, to take you on this retrospective journey, here's your host, direct from the shallow end of the gene pool, my son, Mike Moynihan. Yo and hello everybody, Mike Moynihan here and welcome to another episode of the Golden Age of Cardboard podcast. Today I'm going to do a second part to a series that I started last week looking at underrated and kind of undervalued, underappreciated players from that vintage era. And today we're going to go more towards kind of more modern, you know, last time we did some of the, I'll call them older players. But this time we're going to get a little more modern. There's a couple topics, though, I want to talk about first that I think are just just kind of been on my mind. The first one is the start of baseball season. And I could not be more excited. You know, spring training is in full swing. And, you know, it's one of those kind of optimistic times of year. Spring is coming. You know, we're about to have daylight savings time and all it just, it's starting to feel, okay, we're around the corner from winter and a new season is upon us with baseball. And I was thinking about it last year. I did not go to a single major league baseball game, which guess what? Most of us didn't. I had some, I had some inklings of wanting to go to some of the playoff games that were here in Texas, uh, championship series and world series that were done here, but I never just, that just never worked out. And I realized it was probably the first year that I did not go to a major league baseball game in like 35 years. And I started, I was thinking about that and it made me just sad <laughs> to what the state of the world is. And of course we get it. Like I, I totally understand. Uh, it doesn't mean I like it. And so I'm really looking forward to going to some baseball games this year. I'm looking forward to going to the national. I'm looking forward to a lot of things. Um, another fun thing that happened was uh, I got to be on the sports card nation podcast with John Newman. I think that episode is going to air on Friday, March 12th. So if you've never listened to the sports card nation uh, I encourage you to go check it out. I'd love you to, you know, tell me what you think about the episode. I had a long, nice conversation with John and, you know, we're about the same age. So we have the same kind of collecting history in terms of being in the hobby. And so we just had a great conversation. So, uh, sports card nation, check it out. Uh, that should come out on, uh, March 12th. And then the last thing is, you know, I'm part of the Bench Clear Media team and a proud member of it. And we recently added a new show to our lineup, and that is called The Mint Condition. And it's talking about 
NFTs, and I'll explain that in a second, and just kind of this you know crypto world, digital world that the hobby is just going absolutely bonkers over. And I watched this podcast that these guys did twice, and they did a really great job. Like they they know a lot about it. And I don't know if I'm the old man get off my lawn mentality about it, but I just don't get it. I don't get what's exciting about it. I don't get what's fun about it. And maybe that's partly because I just don't get the technology. I don't get how it works. And this is true of cryptocurrencies. This is true of all these NFTs. NFTs, by the way, stands for non-fungible token. Yeah, whoever came up with that, you know, genius, not really. Uh, Just this whole idea of buying something digitally and owning something digitally. And I feel the same way about fractional share ownership of sports cards. And and yet those are areas that are just booming. But so is the traditional card market too, right? I mean, it's not like buying a physical card is not a profitable endeavor potentially. I just can't get the idea. Like, why would anybody pay for a meme of a something or a, you know, a little digital icon or, I mean, and not just a little bit of money, but hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of dollars for these things for clips from, you know, NBA top shot. And, you know, I've been learning a lot about this through what Gary V is just talking about it like crazy. These non-fungible tokens fungible yeah i think that's right i i'm telling you i just can't get it i and more power to people that do like i'm not even saying it's a bad thing it's just something that i just can't embrace i can't understand it may be the biggest thing ever in six months or a year we may be going man mike you're an idiot for not doing that but i'm always one of those people that i need to understand something in order to put my money in it and I just can't get it. I can't get what makes one valuable versus another one. What makes, how is value created there? And I, I guess a lot of people could say that about sports cards too. What what makes a sports card valuable? Whose picture's on it? Well, what makes a clip valuable? Who's in it? You know, I mean, it's weird how we determine value in our world today. And I think it's... Uh, none of it really has any intrinsic value. Like it doesn't have any value in and of itself. It only is valuable because someone is willing to pay money for it. And uh, that's true. Most collectibles, which is what I consider sports cards. I don't consider sports cards an investment. I consider them a collectible. Now collectibles can have value and all of that, no doubt. But in terms of like, am I going to put my 401k money in sports cards? No, um, I'm not. And, and again, this isn't a, a knock on those who do. It's simply a, this is how I feel about it. This is my perspective on it. And it just feels to me very faddish, very, you know, like totally like a fad, like very short-term gratification on that kind of deal. And the other parallel I would use for that is I thought grading was a fad back in the day. I thought grading cards was, yeah, that's something that'll, that'll kind of die out. People won't really want to spend the money to grade cards and do that. And here we are 
you know, 15 years later ish, almost 20 years later of that grading cards have been going on and it's bigger than ever. So what do I know? You know, I'm just a guy with an opinion, but I'm just, I, I'd like to understand it more. And I'm excited about the mint condition being on our channel because I think it will give a lot of people that maybe have never even, you know, looked at this stuff or have any idea what it is to learn. And I'm all about learning. I really am. I want to learn about how things work and, you know, try to understand it as best I can. I'm a reasonably intelligent guy, but I, I, I am excited to learn, honestly. And those guys did a great job. So I'm excited to see what they bring to the table with the Bench Clear Media team. Uh, as far as Golden Age of Cardboard and the Bench Clear Media team, you know what you're going to get here. We're going to talk about vintage cards, and tonight's no different. We're going to look at a dozen more players that I consider to be kind of undervalued, underappreciated, underloved, maybe in the hobby. And on the last episode, I got a lot of suggestions and comments about, you know, different players that they think should be added or, or whatnot, or, oh, that person's not really even deserving to be in the Hall of Fame and all that. I, you know, it's great to get the feedback and to have people tell me what they, what they feel. I welcome all comments and, and thoughts. Uh, you're not wrong for thinking what you're thinking. And I just want to hear it and have a discussion about it. But it's it's always fun to debate these things. So these are just, again, from my observations in the hobby, looking at all kinds of different cards and card prices, just players that I think, or I guess it's not even that I think, I'm just surprised is probably the better word to use at how little love they get in the hobby. So let's just jump right into it. I mean, we've got, again, 12 players we're going to go through. I'm going to look at these exactly like I did last week. So if you didn't watch episode one or listen to episode one, uh, it'll this will be the same format. Tell you about their career a little bit. Talk about them as a player. Talk about them in the hobby. So you've got, I'm going to look at rookie cards, uh, their last card, autographs, and then relic cards. And the first player I want to talk about is Lou Brock. Lou Brock is one of those guys, he, you know, um, passed away last year. So he got a lot more attention. In fact, uh, a couple of these guys I'm going to mention tonight passed away last year. We lost several Hall of Famers in 2020. But he is uh, just so underrated to me. He was so ahead of his time. Lou Brock was a speedster. Uh, career lasted from 61 to 79. When he retired, he was the all-time leader in stolen bases. Uh, he is rookie card is 1962 tops, which when I talk about uh, rookie card prices, first of all, I'm using VCP, uh, vintage card prices. I'm, I'm looking at a collector grade for each of those cards. So a collector grade, again, as a reminder, is just a, a numerical grade equal to the decade in which the card was released. So for 62 tops, for example, and a six would be a collector grade. His last card was 79 tops. His rookie card, you can get, you know, in a six for around 350 bucks, which uh, is not just crazy. It's 62, that beautiful you know, wood grain border. Uh, he's in a Cubs uniform. The Cubs probably regret trading him in the mid 60s to the Cardinals, where he spent the rest of his career. 
teammate of Bob Gibson and won World Series and all that kind of stuff. His autographs are incredibly easy to get. Not surprisingly, after he passed away, his autographs went up in price, which tends to happen. You'll see a spike in card prices as well, but those tend to level back down. But autographs kind of kind of go up and kind of love and stay up because the realization of this player is never going to sign anything anymore makes the you know supply out there kind of finite. But his autographs are pretty easy to get for Lou Brock. They just might be a little more expensive than they were prior to him passing away. And then I'm going to say this on this player, and it's true of all the players I'm going to mention tonight. Getting relic cards of all these guys because they're more modern players are incredibly easy. And I mentioned it last time, and I kind of got some feedback, interestingly, about relic cards of, oh, I hate relic cards. You know, they're taking a piece of history and they're chopping it up. And and I get that. I I actually understand that feeling and, and feel that way myself. But that does just because I feel that way doesn't mean I'm gonna it's gonna stop them from doing it. So I'm never gonna own game use jerseys of all these players, but I can own a piece of a game use jersey. And so I just think the relic card is at least I, I think it's cool, is I guess is where I'm trying to go with that. I am uh, you know, just one of those that think that kind of completes out a collection for a different player. So all of these guys I'm going to talk about tonight, you can find relic cards of them all over the place. There's tons of them, bats and jerseys and uniforms and whatnot. So I'm not going to spend any time on each of these players talking about relic cards because they're out there for all of them, if that's something you're into. The second player I want to mention tonight and go through is a guy that I highlighted a few weeks ago uh, on the podcast. Uh, I did it with uh, George Diamond Yard Sports Cards, and we talked through, talked about Rod Carew. And I'll keep saying it uh, as much as I need to. Rod Carew is criminally underrated as a player and not terribly appreciated in the hobby. And that's kind of sad. I mean, his career was long, 67 to 1985. Has that beautiful 1967 Topps rookie card. It is a dual player rookie card, which, again, not a lot of people dig those. But uh it's a high number, so it's it's a little bit pricier, and it, it's actually kind of ticked up quite a bit. It's now for a collector grade in a six, you're going to be paying seven to seven hundred fifty dollars, so certainly not cheap. But they're out there. Uh, you can get his last tops card, which is 1986 tops, and Carew autographs are pretty easy. Uh, there are tons and tons of them out there, and that's going to be true for again most of these players that I'm talking about tonight because. Again, these are more modern guys, and it's an era when autographs were incredibly common and normal and inserted in packs and you name it. Uh, most of these guys have certified autographs all over the place because, again, they're they're more modern players. But uh, Rod Carew, for sure, is somebody that I think is undervalued in the hobby. The next guy I was surprised. I, I really thought about this one. Like, is this guy really underrated? Because I see a lot of guys that collect him. But Gary Carter was really one of the top catchers in his era, period. You know, uh, there's no way around it. I mean, he was, I think for him, he was overshadowed a lot by Johnny Bench. And then you had Carlton Fisk. So there were great catchers in that era that maybe 
stole some of the limelight away from Gary Carter, but what a great career, 74 to 92, played a long, long time. His 1975 Tops cards, one of those four-picture, you know, four-player rookie cards from 75. Uh, Jim Rice has a card just like it. But 75 has some great rookies in it. And, I, you know, at the, in the 75 to $100 range, very reasonable to get a PSA 7 in that card. Uh, really not. That's not crazy for a Hall of Fame rookie card. And last card for him is 1993 tops. And again, Carter, you know, autographs are bountiful. They're all over the place. Uh, the next guy is the only pitcher I'm ironically going to talk about tonight. And I was kind of torn. There's two guys on here that they probably could have been included in last week's episode. They kind of bridge that gap between older, older players and kind of the more modern group. But it's Don Drysdale. And I wanted to make sure I at least brought in one pitcher to talk about. But I think John Drysdale is undervalued in the hobby for simply the reason that he played in the same kind of era that Sandy Koufax did. And he just gets overshadowed a lot by Koufax. And you're, that's another theme you're going to hear me say. There's, these are great players, but they had teammates that might have just garnered a little more attention during their careers. And so you just don't hear about them as much. When people don't talk about the Dodgers in the 60s, it's a lot about Koufax and not as much about Drysdale. But Drysdale himself was an amazing pitcher, just unbelievable. He's uh, Career went from 56 to 69. He has that great 57 tops rookie card with that portrait. And it's again, shockingly inexpensive for a collector grade version of that card. 150 to $200 for a PSA five. Doesn't seem to me that, you know, insane given the way the world is with prices. His last card is 1969 tops. And Drysdale autographs kind of run the gambit. Most of them, there's there's some really easy ones out there. There's some Nabisco autos and stuff that you can get super cheap. Uh, obviously, some of his other stuff. That's true of all these guys, depending on the item, right? Any autograph can be inexpensive or super expensive. Any autographed rookie card, stuff like that, those are going to be always expensive no matter who it is. But in general, if you want to find it on Drysdale autograph, you can do that pretty inexpensively. Okay. Next up, I talked about Lou Brock earlier and how he was the stolen base king. Well, that was true until this guy came along, and that's Ricky Henderson. Ricky Henderson was one of those transformative players, I think, in the in the league because he made speed a weapon, and he was so, so good. I got to watch almost all of Ricky Henderson's career, and I was constantly – just mesmerized by what he could do on the base pads, what he could do as a hitter. He was a great hitter. Everybody thinks he was just a speed guy. He was a great hitter. He walked a lot, great plate discipline. I mean, what an amazing career from 79 all the way to 2003. Ricky played, seemed like Ricky played forever, especially those last years. It was funny. He was just kind of bouncing around. I mean, he played for the Red Sox and like the Padres. And I mean, it's kind of bounced around, but everybody thinks of Ricky Henderson as an Oakland A and that beautiful, uh, absolutely awesome 1980 tops rookie card, which was kind of the last rookie card that ended an era. It ended an era of tops, you know, 
monopoly on the sports card market in 81. You introduced Fleer and Donruss. And so 80 to me is kind of the end of vintage. That's where I draw the line personally. Different people have different opinions on that and that's fine. So to me, it's kind of the last, like that's, that's their only rookie card. That's Ricky Anderson's only rookie card is 1980 tops. And that card has seen a, a nice, um, I guess it, it's gotten some additional respect in the hobby because now a PSA eight of that card, which would be a collector grade for that 350, 450 bucks, something like that. And his stuff goes all the way to Oh three tops, 2003 tops. Now his autographs, I would actually call them medium because Ricky has a lot of autographs out there, but they are a little bit more expensive. You're going to pay a little bit more than your average player from that era. And, but they, they're great. Uh, I love his, his autographs, very long and, and beautiful. So Ricky, you know, just, just amazing and a great player. And I, I think, again, his rookie card has garnered attention, but the rest of his cards are really, really cheap. And so I think he's undervalued. This is the second guy I'm going to talk about next that I think could have been in the first group that I talked about. And that's Eddie Matthews. Eddie Matthews, you know, 512 home runs, I think, if I'm right, or 521. I think he and Willie McCovey had the same number of home runs, which ironically, I'm going to talk about Willie McCovey next. So get ready for that. But Eddie Matthews, longtime Brave, uh, spent his career in the shadow of Hank Aaron. And so it's that other, it's a, it's another scenario of, wow, he was really, really great. And, and yet Hank Aaron, one of the greatest of all time was his teammate for a long time. That just made it harder for, for him to get the love that maybe he deserved in terms of, and certainly now in the hobby, you know, I just think it's, he's one of those guys that is overlooked significantly. What's different about Eddie Matthews and his cardboard career is his 1952 Tops card is super uber expensive. Uh, it's card number 407, which I think is the last card in the set. Somebody can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but card number 407, Eddie Matthews, 52 Tops. And you, to get a five in that, you're going to pay six to $7,000. Like it is not cheap. And another Hall of Famer that has a crazy expensive rookie card in that set is, uh, I think it's Hoyt Wilhelm. His rookie card crazy expensive. I think that's right. Again, somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. It's funny when I say things and I, I'm doing this literally off the cuff. So people rag on me and I make mistakes occasionally when I tell things and it's not intentional. It's simply uh, trying to recall all this stuff in the moment is sometimes uh, difficult. I guess I need to probably make better notes, but I do have all this written out. Um, but the Hoyt Wilhelm thing, I think that's what I'm remembering, right? That his car, rookie card is also in 52 tops and super expensive. Eddie Matthews' last card is 1968 tops. Autographs galore out there for Eddie Matthews. You can get his stuff, his autograph on almost anything. And uh, it's cool. Eddie has two different autographs. He'll have an Eddie Matthews, and then he signs some things, just Ed Matthews. But uh, definitely a guy that's underrated. I told you I was going to talk about Willie McCovey next, so let's do that. Willie McCovey, 59 to 1980, long, long career. Again, overshadowed guy. 
You had Willie Mays as a teammate. I mean, it's hard to compare Willie Mays and Willie McCovey. It's not fair to compare them. They both had amazing careers. Willie McCovey just played with Willie Mays. That's just that's just part of it. And his rookie card, nineteen sixty tops, great card, solo card. One of those. Uh, it's like a rookie. Can't remember the name of it. It's a green card, green background card. Uh, it's kind of in that rookie subset. And you can get a PSA six in that card for around four hundred bucks. So. Not too bad for a, a, a card that's, you know, 61 years old. And his last tops card is 1980 tops. So it runs 1960 all the way to 1980 tops. Lots of autographs of McCovey out there. Easy to find if you want to go get one. Joe Morgan is the second guy in the list today that passed away last year. And until he passed away, I, I would say Joe Morgan was even more underrated than he is now. Sadly, when you pass away, just more attention is brought to your career and people have more demand for cards of that player. And that certainly happened with Joe Morgan. His career ran from 63 to 1984. He has a 65 tops rookie card, a dual player autograph or not autograph, a dual player rookie card in 65 tops, which you can get in a PSA six for 200 to 250 bucks. Not too bad. And his last tops card is 85. I think he was playing for the A's then. And his autographs are, are you know, he was a good signer, certainly did nationals and stuff like that. But uh, they're not super, cheap, super, super cheap. Uh, I would put him in the medium category. But they're, again, for, like I said, for all these guys that are out there, they're not hard to find. <laughs> Willie Stargell is next. Had Willie McCovey. Now we're going to do Willie Stargell Pops, 1962 to 1982, a member of the Pirates his entire career. Uh, again, overshadowed a lot, not his entire career, but for quite a bit of his career, he, he played with Roberto Clemente, right? But after Clemente passed away in the early 70s, the Pirates became Willie Stargell's team. He was Pops. And the We Are Family team, uh, he was certainly the leader of that team and just a, a great hitter, power hitter. Uh, he's got his rookie card in 1963 tops. Um, it's a four. It's one of the floating head rookie cards from 63. And I think Stargell is, if you're looking at the card on the bottom right of that card, and it, it, you can get it for around $425. So a little bit pricier, but it, that's because it's a 63 and those cards are just a little more expensive. Last tops card for him is 1982 tops and you can get pops autographs all over the place. Again, super easy to get the next guy. We've got three left is Dave Winfield and Winfield is God, what an amazing ball player. Uh, and, and I think, so overlooked. I hope you guys hear these names and maybe you think the same thing that I do that what great careers and you just don't hear them talked about a lot. Uh, that's what I think about with Dave Winfield started his career with the Padres, went to the Yankees, obviously, and then uh, bounced around a few other team angels and Indians even or whatever. 
but Dave Winfield had a had an amazing career, 1973 to 1995. Uh, his rookie card is 74 tops, and those can be had in a seven, believe it or not, for around 150 to 200 bucks. You can find those. His last tops card was 1995. Autographs are easy. Uh, he's kind of in that. He's not super cheap, but not crazy expensive either. Uh, you can get his stuff all over the place. Dave Winfield was one of those guys that, uh, you know, again, I think when he came to the Yankees, Reggie was there, right? And then you had in the mid-80s when Reggie had moved on to the Angels, you know, Don Mattingly was emerging as a hometown, you know, a town a team favorite of the Yankees. And so he always had these teammates that he was battling with to be kind of top dog on that team, on whatever team he was on. Uh, certainly on the Padres back in the day, he was, you know, there was nobody to, that he had to mess with. He was uh, really, really good. And so there's Dave Winfield. Last two. First one up, Carl Yastrzemski. I think outside of the New England area, outside of Boston, where I think Carl Yastrzemski is a hero and just well-regarded and loved and beloved, uh, Carl Yastrzemski doesn't get talked a lot about. You know, 3,000 hits for Carl Yastrzemski. Career from 61 to 83. What an amazing uh, career and just his what he had to overcome replacing Ted Williams of all people uh, for the Red Sox out in left field. And he just, he just killed it. He was amazing. Uh, his rookie card is 1960 tops, that glorious rookie card. I remember the 60 tops. Kari Stremski was the first big rookie card I got as a kid. I was maybe 12 years old or whatever. And I, I remember getting it. I have it slabbed now, and it was just, wow, I got a Carl Yastrzemski rookie card. You know, I mean, this was when he was still playing. And so I just was so enamored with that card and couldn't believe that I finally owned one. Nowadays, you can get a six for PSA six would be a collector grade, 450 to 500 bucks. So not, again, I mean, that's kind of in that mid-range of price, I would guess. His last tops card is 83 tops. And I do think, again, Carl Stremski is one of those guys that has a very loyal and strong following in the in the Red Sox nation, you know. And so his autographs tend to go for a little more than other typical players of that era, just because I think there's a high demand from, again, Red Sox nation. So his prices are, are kind of in that medium range. But uh, not necessarily hard to get, but you just might pay a little more. And uh, so I would love to see Carl Stremski get some more hobby love just in, in general beyond the Boston area. And the last guy I'm going to talk about, notice I've been doing these in alphabetical order. We're down to the Ys. There's not many other Hall of Famers that are Ys, and that's Robin Yount. And... Uh, People have asked me, I guess, should, I should say that I should have said this at the beginning, but I'll say it now. Hopefully, if you're still listening, a lot of people ask, why did you only do Hall of Famers? Why didn't you do? There's a lot of other underappreciated, undervalued players that were great players in their era, and that's completely true, 100% true. Uh, I just know a lot more. I just have spent a lot of my, you know, 
recent collecting life, the last decade or so, focusing on Hall of Famers. So I just tend to know more about them and can give more information and I think more informed knowledge about them versus some of these other guys. Uh, so it doesn't, maybe I'll do a whole show on the undervalued non Hall of Famers. That, that wouldn't be a bad idea for a show. But let's finish up with Robin Yount here, 1974 to 1993. He has a 1975 Topps rookie card, and it is incredibly, I think, inexpensive. 150 to 160 bucks you can get those for in a PSA 7, which is, I think, super inexpensive. Not bad at all. And uh, his last Topps card is 1994 Topps. Uh, Autos abound of Robin Yount, easy to get. Uh, he actually does through the mail autographs as well. One thing about Yount is not necessarily that he was overshadowed by a teammate, although Paul Molitor was a teammate of his, you know, in the 80s and stuff. But I think Robin Yount was more overshadowed, especially in the hobby, because of an, another third baseman named George Brett or a third baseman, not another one. Robin Yount played shortstop and then outfield later in his career. But uh, I think Robin Yount won two MVPs too, 3,000 hits. So, again, really underrated mainly because of just the era that he started. And it's, again, not his fault, but 75 tops, everybody thinks George Brett rookie card. But, again, you have Rice, Carter, Yount, also with rookie cards in that set. And I, but I just think they get overshadowed uh, because of the Brett being such an iconic card and Brett being such a, just a more popular player for whatever, for any reason. Uh, actually, Gount and Brett had kind of similar careers. It's it, in terms of career numbers. And uh, anyway, so that's kind of the list that I came up with. Between last week and this week, I really hope that you enjoyed me just sharing my thoughts on players that I think are undervalued, under underappreciated in the hobby. And uh, maybe it'll inspire you to go out and collect those players, get at least a few cards of those players, maybe find a rookie card, grab an autograph for your collection, a relic card, you name it. Collect how you want, do what you want. I just think uh, the greats are always the greats, and that's why I'm so focused on Hall of Famers, and I just love collecting them. So that's it for today for this episode of Golden Age of Cardboard. Thanks again for tuning in, for watching on YouTube, listening wherever you are in the podcast world. Thanks again. Have a great one and keep collecting.